Hi guys, just a little disclaimer before we get started on today's episode, um, just to reiterate that the contents obtained and listened to from this podcast is um, for informational purposes only. Any text, graphics, images, or information used on any other platform is for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to substitute for professional med- medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of a physician or qualified health provider with any questions you have before embarking on any of the practices explained within this episode. We're just about to dig into part two of episode one with Dr. Dean. If you haven't listened to part one already, that was uploaded around a week ago. So just scroll down the iTunes or the SoundCloud and just refer to part one of this episode before listening to this content here it won't make a lot of sense if you haven't listened to part one already but we're about to delve into a little bit more depth when it comes to side effects the potential and the inevitable Um, looking into pct looking into cruising looking into tapering dosages um, bridging between cycles um, and a, a fair bit of information in regards to just things we can do over the counter or through just health practices to to limit the uh, adverse side effects from using performance enhancing drugs. Enjoy. Okay. Um, so when we look at so clinical application, then because we met, we mentioned this uh, topic like previously on the last one, the the concept of getting the most from the least to a increase someone's longevity of being able to benefit from these exogenous hormones without having to be reckless because the levels of you know any super physiological increase is going to be massively increasing our favor of growing tissue regardless of the dose but also tolerance levels in terms of the potential side effects that we can control and limit by the dosage we're using you know those potential and inevitable side effects obviously we've got health markers being impacted but to talk us through both male and female like we did last time in terms of what are we looking at that we could potentially be running the risk of um you know of accruing during the process of using these hormones whether recklessly or in a sensible manner sensible yeah i mean the clinical applications why why were they originally um created we need to go back to that to start so we could be looking at someone who's hypogonadal, where loss of testosterone output has happened naturally. So now we need to supplement exogenously with a hormone like testosterone in order to yield, you know, increased vitality, increased strength, all these things to lead into a better quality of life. What gets them misconstrued from the clinical application and is looking at, again, going back to the pharmacology of it, we spoke about the toxicology and therapeutic index and that we need to look at what is the minimal effective dose. So what's going to yield a toxic effect versus therapeutic? So we we have a, a therapeutic index of where we take a certain concentration of a drug and it yields a therapeutic effect. When we leave that, then we end up with our, our toxic curve, as to speak. Where we, when we go beyond that effective dose for yield and toxic side effects. Mm. For example, we could go to something as simple as paracetamol. You take one gram of paracetamol, it treats a headache. So why not take 50 grams? Yeah. 
well, for one thing, paracetamol gets broken down in your liver to generate uh, toxic metabolites as one of its uh, metabolic pathways. So one gram may treat a headache, 50 grams may end you up in AE with liver failure. So it's not necessarily taking more is better, which is an awful mentality which we are seeing today. It should be basically assessing what is your body's minimal effective dose mm. to yield higher myotropic benefits, so increased anabolic effects while keeping androgenic side effects to a minimum. Then what we could look at is again another bro mentality of um, giving your receptors a break <laughs> in parentheses as to speak of receptor clearance which is just a silly concept that I don't know who began at some stage. I mean, androgen receptors do get down-regulated. And that when we, I suppose it's probably best to start from the beginning. If we take super physiological dosages of testosterone, our androgen receptor gene expression gets increased. So we have increased androgen receptor expression on our cells, which leads to increased anabolic effects. To a certain point when we've reached that saturation level where our body where our genes are at the point of being auto-regulated to down-regulate the production of androgen receptors. Mm. So in that case, then, what we can then look at then is try and yield the maximum result for that concentration and then look to actually play off this by lowering the androgen concentration to, to physiological levels to allow that androgen receptor um, upregulation to come back to normal. So obviously we've, we've upregulated receptors with high super physiological concentrations. We reach a point where that gene is maximized. Then what we can do is look to bring ourselves back to a physiological dose to allow that gene expression to calm down as to speak. And then we can go again. So this whole thing of giving your receptors a break is ridiculous when it's all control of genes. It's nothing got to do with the receptor. Yeah. And again, so, that's, that's all off pharmacodynamics, like we said to start, mm. where we know like we have the relationship between a serum concentration and its therapeutic effects. Yeah. So understanding the underlying pharmacodynamics towards that gene regulation. Yeah. Then... Yeah. It's another case of lack of education and people not going deep enough, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that is, that's probably one of the underlying reasons which drives people to PCTs, yeah. which again, we'll touch on in a bit. But by telling someone to come off to give the receptors a break is just complete and utter BS. Yeah. Um, if we look then at the side effects and steroid safety, we can probably break it down into, or the two are probably overlapping in terms of potential and inevitable. So inevitable, in males, we're probably looking at testicular atrophy. So because of the HPTA feedback inhibition, 
the testicles are no longer being stimulated. So we may see testicular size decrease. Um, so again, that may look at giving someone sexual dysfunction. And again, with females, that could yield virilization through the interaction with increased androgen. So we're looking at clitoral enlargement, hair stuicism, so increased hair growth and voice deepening. Mm. All as a a potential, but also I it could be possibly an inevitable side effect of using these androgens in certain females. Mm. Um again inevitable or potential could be fluid retention from increased estrogen production from aromatase and hepatic toxicity from using 17 alpha methylated compounds Um, we could have hair loss acne gynecomastia um, cardiovascular disease kidney disease fertility issues prostate, benign prostate hyperplasia of prostate growth or another side that a lot of people probably are underestimating are actually mental issues mm. in that we may some, see someone who may experience um, psychosomatic side effects like increased aggression because again if we go back to the indirect effects of androgens, one of them is with the dopamine receptor. So someone who could be at potential risk of having an aggressive personality may be further amplified. So again, we may see then someone who has roid rage as to speak. It could be all based back to their genetics of how they express their dopamine receptors. And um, also quite common to see people get the old... Um like quite serious cases of fatigue due to like estrogen's interaction with serotonin and stuff like that. So they, they bottom out their serotonin. Yeah. I mean, again, the reason for that is because androgens interact with COMT, with catechol or methyltransferase, but estrogen also does. And also, so does dopamine and adrenaline and noradrenaline. They all get cleared via COMT. So if we're mucking in a load of androgens, we're putting increased demand on COMT, either via the androgens themselves or the indirect metabolism to estrogen. So we can see all this causing a bottleneck in COMT leading to increased levels of dopamine building in the brain. So whether that manifests over then as um, increased aggression or not being able to sleep, which we see then with the likes of certain androgens. Mm. And again, going back to what we started at the very beginning with my sleep stack, that was a key reason why magnesium is included in the formula. Magnesium bisglycinate is there to support COMT, to help you clear neurotransmitters out of your brain. Because of if you are taking androgens, there's an increased demand or need for magnesium. And again, this is a supplement that is completely overlooked by, by a lot of the general population is their magnesium needs. Even through the loss in um, physical activity, let alone supporting COMT. Yeah. Um, 
not only do we see aggression, but what's worrying me is what we're going to see in the next 20 years in terms of mental issues. Mm. We already have studies from the use of nandrolone in its effects on special reasons. So they've done a study comparing subjects who took nandrolone versus subjects who did not. Now again, the study design isn't fantastic, but they found those who used nandrolone previously in the past had a loss of spatial reasoning. So a loss of neuroplasticity in their brain. So does that mean in 20 years time, all the abuse we're starting to see with steroids that we're going to see mental deficits in older generations being amplified? So someone who's in their 20s may be perfectly fine now, but come their 30s, they may start forgetting people's names. Mm. By their 40s, they're forgetting directions. And then to their 50s, again, it's very difficult to say because we're only looking at, in recent years, rampant abuse. Mm. So what effect, aside from cardiovascular risk disease, are we going to start seeing mental issues within our current population from anabolic abuse? Mm. And then also possibly some people who have addictive personalities, again, all based off dopamine, may experience withdrawal. Which are most, which are most bodybuilders as well. A lot of, yeah. most, most of the people that bodybuilder also have very addictive personalities and very extreme personalities as well. Yeah. And I mean, then you have this side of withdrawal and that, they start to see their body change when they have lack of androgens or when they're within a, a PCT phase, yeah. which may further drive then going back to the use of anabolics. Yeah. Um, I suppose the other thing that then a lot of people, again, don't take into consideration as a risk, and we touched on it at the start, are the injection risks. Mm. So the risks of putting an unknown sterile compound with potential heavy metals in it into your system, basically, mm. that could yield um, abscesses or heavy metal toxicity. Mm. So again, there that's a potential side effect that's not generally thought about versus people thinking about um, heart disease or their kidney loss of kidney function or loss of fertility. Yeah. Um, again, then these are all side effects, but probably the main lesson to take from here is that steroid safety. If someone is going to partake in the use of hormones, what can they do? So probably the first thing again that everyone should be doing is blood work. Mm. Monitor blood work as a function of change to dosage or as a function to duration. So if we're looking to increase dosages, so if we've reached a point like we spoke earlier of androgen receptor saturation and we're no longer yielding an effect from a given concentration, then use blood work to assess changes in um, blood work parameters to a particular dosage. So we can, we can safely increase our dosage based off what our body's telling us. Yeah. So if we say we, we were to increase tremble 
and all of a sudden it dropped HDL completely to point one, and it drove HDL up. Well, and that's some trembolone you're putting yourself at further risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, so that probably leads on to the next point, and that with blood work, you're probably going to be watching in your, your lipid levels, your hepatic metabolism, so all the enzymes which feed off hepatic metabolism, ALT, AST, and actually ALP. A lot of people fail to check ALP as probably a more direct marker towards liver metabolism than AST and ALT. The other one, and this is golden for a lot of people, is probably GGT. People see GGT on a blood test and think it's nothing like. But GGT is probably going to be the best marker to tell you how stressed your liver is, as it's an indirect correlation to glutathione. So if you have high GGT, that means you have low glutathione, which means that you're putting your body at oxidation risk as glutathione is the major antioxidant in the body, which again is probably the reason why I recommend glutathione to any enhanced bodybuilder and why I made it with supplement needs. Um, we'll talk about um, over-the-counter subs in a second. Second, yeah. I mean, but then again, the next thing then would be kidney health. It's very difficult to to keep check of kidney health with bodybuilders because of the skew that creatine kinase gives from training and also creatinine from either creatine supplementation or um, again the high levels of food that is required for anabolism Mm. Um, I suppose the best way to keep check of kidney health on top of your your GF4, the agglomeration filtration rate, is to keep an eye on blood pressure. There's no reason why any person who's going to partake in the enhanced side of bodybuilding shouldn't own a blood pressure monitor. Yeah. And how about um, electrolyte balance and stuff like that? Sorry, say again? How about looking at electrolyte balance on blood work? Yeah, you can. Again, that's probably going to help you assess kidney function better also if we see low levels of chloride for example Mm. it may be a a marker that something's not being um we have loss of hydration from the body or by by bicarbonate and that we're we're leading to more acidic levels in the body because of inefficient filtration of proteins Mm. um i guess kidney health within bodybuilders is probably more an artifact of other systems like lipids and blood pressure. Um, If we can keep blood pressure down either through controlling our lipids so that we don't have um, increased arterial dysfunction and if we can control blood pressure so that there's increased arterial flow then we're reducing the pressure being exerted. The other side again then is um, digestion, a completely overlooked side to enhanced bodybuilders. And I'd probably be 99% confident in saying that a lot of bodybuilders suffer with low stomach acid. Mm. 
Mm. And that's all going to feed into um, inefficient protein breakdown and yielding higher sized peptides going into the bloodstream for filtration by the kidneys. Yeah. It's something as simple as that that is completely overlooked towards kidney health also. Mm-hmm. If you're ingesting high amounts of protein, you better be sure that your stomach is efficiently hydrolyzing those amino acids into smaller peptide sizes to help reduce stress down on the kidneys. Mm-hmm. Chew your damn food, people. And again, yeah, chew your food and stop looking at diluting your stomach acid by guzzling down water. I mean, how many bodybuilders get to a force-feeding stage of meals to just keep food going down because they no longer have the um, neural capacity to keep chewing their food. Mm. The, 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 the food, the water dil- diluting uh, stomach acid has actually been disproven. It's, um, it, it, it's kind of an indirect, it still affects it in that it will create like a, uh, an indirect, uh, a false sense of fullness, which will decrease stomach acid production, but okay. the um, volume of water you'd need to dilute stomach acid is like, um, like five liters. I suppose yeah, it's probably because of the, the molar concentration of the stomach yeah. acid in our stomach. Mm. But yeah, again, that, that's all control of parietal function. And again, that's another side of people not supporting it is their, their stomach health. Mm. So that'll probably all tie in with OTC supplementation. But steroid safety, the number one thing you should be doing is monitoring your blood work, monitoring your blood pressure. And then we can get more probably technical, depending on budget, we can then assess fasting blood glucose and then also then heart rate variability yeah. to assess the, the damage that's occurring on the CNS. What we'll do is we'll record a follow-up episode that is just specifically about data tracking. Mm. It's funny though, I keep getting clients who are using it or considering using it and and every time I say, oh, can you get a blood pressure monitor? I met with resistance. It's like, dude, if you if you're gonna go down this route, that's like the bare minimum, right? And like for anyone that's listening, um, I think it's Life Source. Life Source on Amazon do an extra large cuff, yeah, which caters caters for like a twenty three inch arm from 17, 16 inches up to twenty three inch arm. Yeah, you can get them on the MediSave as well. So there's just absolutely, you buy one of these, it will last you for 10, 12 years. You take good care of it. They're not expensive as well. Like they're not even expensive. I know. No, I mean, the, the long-term investment of a hundred pounds towards your health and longevity is a, a no brainer, but we're yeah. getting then into people willing to partake with money. Mm-hmm. So with OTC supplementation, what markers can we control? So, if we go back to the side effects, I'll just say for those that don't know, OTC is just over the counter stuff you can get like legally in supplement shops and stuff like that, right? Yeah, so they're not controlled substances, they don't have a, a, a medical class yeah. control. So, if we break that down, we can go back to earlier on with the side effects and we can start from the top and that we can have mental side effects. 
so we can support neural neurotransmitter clearance like we briefly touched on by supporting COMT or we may support um, neurotransmitter production mm. we may need increased serotonin because we may see serotonin depletion from the use of androgens mm. so again we're looking at the likes of um, tyrosine um, tryptophan all these amino acids which feed into neurotransmitter event. Then we can look at cardiac. So again, like I said, the, the main thing you should be doing with um, cardiovascular disease prevention is, first of all, controlling inflammation. So we can look at the likes of um, curcuminoids or another one which is really good is resveratrol. Mm. Good for the brain as well. Huh? Yeah. Uh, and that, again, that's the reason why I developed the liposomal curcumin and resveratrol with supplement needs to increase the bioavailability of the curcuminoids for uh, delivery within the body mm. um, then the other side of it then would be decreasing LDL oxidation mm. like we touched on earlier so making sure that we're keeping our oxidation status low um, Then we can look at, again, like I said, HDL production. But again, that's going to feed on later on into your liver health. Um, I suppose blood pressure as an artifact, again, of your um, heart health as well. Kidneys, we're then looking at support and creatinine clearance. So probably a lot of people are aware of using astragalus for kidney health it's not that astragalus directly supports the kidney cells themselves it is actually an agent to help with removal of creatinine from the blood mm. so the less creatinine that's being pressed through your kidneys the less pressure you're exerting on them so again you're, you're saving nephrotic um, function mm. um, then we have digestion and blood glucose management so we're all feeding into them with the stomach and the pancreas. So we should be taking care of supporting our um, enzymatic production because of possibly the increased need for food with using anabolic agents. Mm. Um, keeping an eye on our blood glucose. So either by the use of glucose disposal agents or again, dietary modifications. And then leading into the last part, which would be your liver and gallbladder, and as a subset of that, your pancreas again. So you should be looking at supporting phase one and phase two metabolism of the liver. Aid in glutathione production. So ensuring that you have adequate glutathione stores to support metabolism of hepatotoxic compounds. And also look at then supporting your gallbladder. So bile production. Mm. looking at stopping um, gallstone formation or cholestasis where we get blockages in the, the gallbladder itself which again if we don't have sufficient bile flow through the gallbladder we have backflow then into the liver which again will cause toxicity effects mm. so we need to ensure that the bile ducts are clear to allow efficient cholesterol and um, fat clearance from the liver and then obviously with the pancreas 
for insulin and digestive enzyme formation, which be an artifact of the diet. And talk me through the the interactions when we where we spoke last time about um, glutathione um, and NAC. So you know they're both going to be long term potentially achieving the same purpose. What's going to be more effective to to use for that purpose? So a lot of people previously would have been using NAC to support glutathione synthesis. Now the conversion process there is quite poor. And then what followed on from that then was oral reduced glutathione as a means of supplementing the glutathione pool in the body. So if we take reduced glutathione, the body will actually recycle it back into circulation as glutathione itself. But both of these have quite poor bioavailability. I mean, NAC is primarily acting as a sulfur donor source to help with glutathione production. Is that why it stinks? Yeah. yeah. And that's why glutathione actually properly stinks. That was a big thing with developing the one with supplement needs was that it had to be quite odorless yeah. and taste good. Because prior to actually developing the supplement needs one, I was using another brand and I actually recommended it to James Hollingshead. And people may have seen the time when James done it on his Insta story of taking it for the first time. He nearly got sick because <laughs> it smells rancid. It smells like rotten egg. <laughs> so the supplement needs one is quite um, neutral in its smell and taste. That was the taste of it is probably more lines of a, a citrus flavor. Instead of rotten egg, which is good. Instead of rotten egg, yeah. So by taking liposomal glutathione, the reason for that is liposomes have close to 100% bioavailability because they're directly uptaken into your cells where they're then lysed. So if anyone's listening, a liposome is basically a little fat molecule where the glutathione has been absorbed inside it. Previously, a lot of people would have administered glutathione as a, an IV injection. But again, we're looking at patient compliance of, is someone willing to inject something, not even intramuscularly, but now intravenously. Mm. So the liposomal glutathione will have 100% bioavailability and if anyone is partaking towards the route of enhanced supplementation, the supplement needs dosage is 450 milligrams per five mil serving. Once a week is all that's needed to help keep glutathione stores at a, um, at a, a sufficient level. Hmm. And any particular time you'd suggest taking that, like away from training due to the antioxidant effect, or is that going to have any impact at all? Yeah, possibly. The best time I recommend is either first thing in the morning or last thing at night. Possibly last thing at night is probably the best way because, again, the main sources of glutathione use in your body is actually your mitochondria. They have the highest antioxidant need within the body. And when they are oxidizing fatty acids, they actually are using glutathione to quench that burning process, as to speak. So we know that our mitochondria are most active at night time when we're sleeping. So possibly taking at night time before bed or first thing in the morning. 
but that is one supplement that is invaluable even in terms of your environmental exposure to toxins. Mm. Like I was saying earlier, when we touched on paracetamol, people aren't aware that one gram of paracetamol depletes glutathione by 95%. (laughs) So if you have a headache and you take one gram of paracetamol for, think of what downstream effects that's having on your health. It's, it's, it's scary. And I mean, you can go into a pharmacy and I had this rant the other day on Facebook, uh, on Instagram, I mean, that you can go into a pharmacy and buy paracetamol without issue and the pharmacist will never tell you of this potential side effect. No. Combine the stem with alcohol ingestion, paracetamol gets converted into a toxic metabolite, as I spoke about earlier. That production of the toxic metabolite is further increased when we ingest alcohol. So one gram of paracetamol might deplete glutathione 95%. Combine with alcohol, that's your glutathione gone. So how's your body going to cope with if you're doing multiple dosages of glutathione when it's uh, multiple dosages of paracetamol, I mean, when there's a glutathione um, expectation to help quench that toxicity. Mm. Mm. It's, it's probably worth mentioning that people will be able to kind of marginally top their glutathione stores up through dietary means, but nothing to the degree that they would if they were to supplement with liposomal sorts, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like that that's just a subset of general populations. Yeah. Using a compound which is readily available without education. Mm. I mean, when was the last time someone went into a pharmacy or you were in a pharmacy and you heard someone ask for even the likes of paracetamol and codeine for a hangover, that the pharmacist assistant or the pharmacist themselves um, interacts with the customers saying, oh, hang on, if you take paracetamol and codeine having drank loads of alcohol last night, you're actually putting a worse burden on your liver. Mm. And then we start to see all side effects of why people are going around with tired faces. It's yeah. crazy. So, I just looked yeah, on the website uh, again. It's uh, it's sold out again. I've been having that chat with Lee, who owns Supplement Needs, and uh, I think the next couple of production runs we need to, need to bump, bump, bump them up because the again, when, when you're looking at starting out, you're looking at what the potential market is. so it's nice to see the demand is there too. Oh, and, and more, yeah. And um, only last week I had a Skype consultation with Lee and we put together four new products. So I'm hoping that they're with us by the end of the year. And that's basically with the goal then of having all of the the markers that we need to control through OTC being catered for in one source. So someone can go onto the website and just buy X, Y, and Z rather than trawling through Amazon, trying to basically pick the correct brands. Because like a lot of people will probably deal with the likes of Jarrow's or life extensions. But again, you're looking at different sellers on Amazon and different delivery dates and it just gets messy. So having one supplement company, one spot, which has 
all your supplement needs as a pun <laughs> would be uh, ideal for people. Yeah. And then again, I, I, I will start now putting together the likes of podcasts like this and more informational videos on the supplement needs website as we develop more products to educate people when they're buying things as consumers as to what they should be ideally taking. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. We appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's just sad in today's age that we don't have the likes of medical professions on board with preaching the likes of, steroid safety for one and then taking care of patients health mm. i mean a lot of medical doctors will vilify steroid usage rather than i guess putting the patient first and then actually taking care of the patient's health yeah, yeah. um what are we up to then uh right so we're going to have to flip back a little bit, but the final segment was going to be on um, tapering, cruising, or coming off. Obviously, you've spoken about the concept of um, receptor sensitivity and how that's not a route that we need to go down. Um, reducing due to trying to improve blood work and health markers is obviously one thing, one fact to, con to consider. In the, in the scenario where somebody is going to come off completely, and obviously we've already discussed in the past where... If somebody, if somebody's intentions were to run these exogenous hormones long term, then it would be make more sense to stay on but lower the total dosages, tidy things up, run blood work, and go again in a smart manner. It's going to potentially, you know, increase the consequences and potential issues by running PCTs, you know, multiple times, especially if they're running correctly. Give me a break. That one of the one of the first times that I. You, you properly exploded in the stratosphere was when you released that PCT video. And that was one of the first times that I saw you speak on camera as well. And then that's the, the start following from there. What, why did that video come about? And give me, give me an introduction to why we need to consider these things because it's happening. It's right. You look at all the forums, it's telling you all the wrong stuff. Just, just give me an explanation on over that. So I, I guess we need to look at what happens first when we remove exogenous hormones yeah. if someone goes this path? So basically, what controls endogenous hormone production? And that's known as our HPTA, our hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis, or for short, HPG, that hypothalamus pituitary gonadotropin uh, axis. So basically what we have here is we have a hormone known as gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which was released via the hypothalamus. That acts on the pituitary to tell it to output two key hormones involved in male fertility, or in females also, but in the context we're speaking males here, and they're LH, luteinizing hormone, or FSH, which is follicle-stimulating hormone. So LH, luteinizing hormone, primarily acts on the Leydig cells and FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, mainly acts on the Sertoli cells to increase intratesticular testosterone production. So that's what yields free-circulating testosterone in males. 
by acting on the Sertoli cells also it aids in spermatogenesis, so increasing sperm production. So if we know that that's what controls the HBTA, what is the feedback mechanism for its inhibition? So we have a protein known as, there's four main methods basically, if I'm gonna break it down quickly. Now we have inhibin B, <coughs> which is a protein which acts on the Sertoli cells, which we just spoke about there. So that will regulate FSH production from the pituitary. So if we, if we have increased circulating levels of inhibin B, the Sertoli cells are gonna output less FSH. The, the pituitary, I mean, is gonna output less FSH, so it's going to have an effect then on uh, intratesticular testosterone production. The main one would be when we increase testosterone concentrations in the body, we end up with an increased um, production of aromatase, which we were talking about earlier. So estrogen aromatization, or more specifically, interaction of um, estrogen with the estrogen receptor reduces how much gonadotropin-releasing hormone, GNRH, is released from the hypothalamus. So you'll have reduced pulses of GNRH, which will then further inhibit, uh, inhibit the pituitary to output LH and FSH. Then the other two sides of it would be leptin and leper expression. And the final one would be prolactin. So a lot of people disregard prolactin in terms of having male sexual dysfunction side effects of uh, lactation, but it also has an indirect effect back on the hypothalamus as an inhibition mechanism. So if we have high levels of prolactin, we're going to have decreased output from the hypothalamus. So the main issue here is that with modern PCT, and I touched on it in the video, was that no one is considering the pharmacokinetics of any of these compounds they're taking. They're not following proper clearance times with regard to their half-life. So again, you need to be understanding the metabolism and excretion of the compound. So mainly people are probably going to be aware of what is known as the power PCT protocol developed by Dr. Michael Scally, and he proposed this method in his research of a way of increasing um, HPTA output following AAS use. Now, at some point, this got completely misconstrued towards running this protocol two weeks after finishing your cycle. Yeah. I don't know who done it, but I'll touch on it in a bit. I don't think this was ever from Dr. Scally himself. Yeah, because I think he, he says that two weeks is far too soon. Yeah. So, uh, so again, this comes back to the ester. That would be fine if you're using a fast-acting ester. Something like acetate, which gets cleaved and released into the body within one to two days. You could potentially start PCT within two weeks of stopping use. But for the likes of Anante or the longer-acting um, esters, you're looking at adhering to the clearance period, which could be, for example, waiting. The general rule is five half-lives. So if Anante is five to seven days half-life, you need to wait five to six weeks 
for the blood to, for the compound to efficiently clear. Now you could potentially, and someone argued to me about this was tapering off longer esters to shorter esters to play off the pharmacokinetics. So at some point in the middle of a cycle, dropping out a long-acting ester to allow it to clear and switching over to a faster-acting ester. But for one thing, you're going to be messing with blood plasma concentration, swapping esters like that, so you better understand how the two of them are going to interact with one another. So it may cut two weeks off that clearance period, so rather than five weeks with an ante, if you swapped over to a propionate ester, you may only have to wait 20 days or so. So no one is going off the pharmacokinetics. They're starting power PCT, which is basically using a gonadotropin, which is a synthetic form of either LH or FSH. So we either have human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG, or we have HMG, which is human menopausal gonadotropin, which is either a ratio of LH and FSH, or it's purely recombinant FSH. So that's involved basically to act as a mimic to the shutdown body to initiate intratesticular testosterone production via an exogenous source. Mm. So the very first thing anyone should be doing following using anabolics is waiting the clearance period and then getting blood work to confirm that they're at a hormonal baseline that they're at zero. There's no point in initiating gonadotropin therapy if there's free circulating compound in the blood because it's basically going to act on one of those inhibition mechanisms. Mm. So while in theory, LH and FSH may go up during that period, when that compound fully clears and you've overlapped that period with gonadotropin therapy, you're at risk of further shut down when the gonadotropins are removed. And Dr. Scali has touched on this in discussions. That makes no sense to be overlapping using gonadotropins while exogenous hormone is present within the body. So once we know that the exogenous hormones are completely removed, then we can look at introducing gonadotropins as a kickstart mechanism to aid the body to initiate intratesticular testosterone production. Mm. The power PCT is using 2,000 IUs of HCG every 20 days. Every second day for 20 days, I mean, sorry. And then proceeding into using a selective estrogen receptor modulator, a CIRM, to aid in the pituitary's output of your own LH and FSH. Now, the issue here is the time length Someone may be using gonadotropins for to 20 days, but they may never reach a normal level of intratesticular testosterone. So that when they actually transition over to the serum, basically all the serum is doing is um, amplifying the signal. So if, if we were to put it in a simple term, if we take clomiphene or clomid, what it's known as, as our serum, it's basically doubling the output of our natural LH. It's amplifying the signal from the pituitary. Mm. Now, if intratesticular testosterone concentrations are still at a low level, when we go to boost our LH level endogenously, we're never going to reach 
a high intratesticular testosterone concentration naturally. So a person is better off running the gonadotropin until they actually see intratesticular testosterone reach a normal level. So that could take five or it could take eight weeks of gonadotropin use. Mm. So you just test and then if it wasn't sufficient, you'd go again at the same dose. Yeah, you'd go again at the same dose. And if it's from a fertility perspective, you may look at then adding something like um, HMG, which would have recombinant FSH. So that will act locally then on the Sertoli cells themselves to increase spermatogenesis. So you'd be monitoring blood work all through PCT, having finished the gonadotropins to see where your intratesticular testosterone concentration is. Yeah. And again, that's from an external stimulatory source. That is not what your body's producing naturally. So again, you can get misconstrued in the data that's coming off this, but that is from external stimulation from HCG or HMG. Mm-hmm. When we remove that, we are now looking for the pituitary to kick over and output LH and FSH to support the Sertoli cells and intratesticular testosterone concentration production Mm. by using the serum. Then the other thing that gets lost in the likes of forms and people passing down the para-PCT is that like I said at the start, one of the inhibition mechanisms is estrogen. Mm. When we administer gonadotropins like HCG, we get intratesticular aromatization mm. because of we've increased intratesticular testosterone. So we need to be ensuring that aromatase expression is kept low during the period of using gonadotropins. So this may be the only time, for example, when you do want to run an aromatase inhibitor yeah. following administration of the gonadotropin. So the gonadotropin, again, if we administer on a Monday, then we may look to use an aromatase inhibitor on the Tuesday when it's passing into blood circulation. Mm. Again, what we're doing there is preserving this feedback mechanism to get intratesticular testosterone up to a sufficient physiological level mm. before we get the pituitary involved. But again, none of this is taken into account and it's, it's gotten lost along the way. Um, I've become recently involved with a website called steroidabuse.org and Dr. Scally is one of the contributors to the website. And he actually released a PCT follow-up article there last Monday on the website where he actually breaks down completely and entirely the flaws of PCT currently and where it needs to go forward in its um, research, basically. But again, a lot of the research proposal, which he has at the end of the article, will never get approved because we're talking about experiment with humans and exogenous hormones. Mm. All we can go back off is... Uh, clinically validated data and anecdote rather than conducting mass experiments. Yeah. So, so what are your views on people using HCG during a cycle to preserve fertility and potentially also people using things like serms during a cycle to counteract gyno and stuff like that? Is that pointless and, and so, dangerous? Or? 
there's no issue with using a serum when on cycle because again, tamoxifen, which is used to block estrogen receptors in breast tissue, has only transient effects on LH and FSH output. So there's no issue with running that concomitantly on a cycle to block estrogen receptors if you are susceptible to gynecomastia. But again, you need to be aware that tamoxifen itself is hepatotoxic has been shown to cause liver cancer. So that is, again, something that you can't run indefinitely without understanding the risks behind it. Mm. As for using gonadotropins while on cycle, the only study that we have there is Dr. Chrysler's method of using low-dose HCG in TRT patients. Mm. These people who are hypogonadal, they are fated to using TRT long-term. So we can look at using HCG as a potential strategy to preserve fertility in those cases. Because in a lot of cases, their fertility is still intact. Even though they're hypogonadal, they're still producing sperm. Mm. If we were to look at adding gonadotropins in the context of continuous use while on cycle, I made this point over and over again, we don't have any long-term studies of concomitant use mm. of gonadotropins with superphysiological dosages of anabolic steroids. Mm. So in the context of using HCG whilst on cycle, I believe probably the best way is to save it for when it's needed. Mm. And that is either when we want to initiate an increase in fertility or when we come off and want the HPTA to be restored. Yeah. And, and that's it. So you, you would tell people that, restoring fertility after a cycle provided you go about it the way you've suggested is is quite achievable and people shouldn't worry about having to implement it during yes i mean again this all comes back to genetic control of the hbta inhibition yeah if that pituitary signal is lost it may happen over a continuous period of usage with unfortunate luck or you, you may lose it within the first three days of your first steroid cycle. Mm. That signal could be lost forever. Mm. So I'm not of the belief of using or it's needed during a cycle. Mm. I mean, the counter argument is there is that it preserves testicular size and prevents atrophy. And so therefore long-term you're aiding a faster recovery post-cycle. But that's not really the case because post-cycle you're still going to be hypogonadal with low intratesticular testosterone concentrations, regardless of whether you used HCG or not while on cycle. Yeah. So it may preserve spermatogenesis, but it's going to do nothing to further help speed up HPTA restoration. Yeah. And again, if someone is using it, they need to be aware of that using HCG itself will aromatase in the testes anyway. So the, that could be further feeding back onto inhibition of the HPTA. Mm. So it, it's quite a, a multi-complex faceted strategy that needs really careful consideration. It's, and that was what really annoyed me to put the video up is that over years of seeing on forums and Facebook of throwing out these stupid recommendations without taking someone's health into account and actually thinking logically of what's going on. So basically putting out some sort of information that is readily and easily understood with the science application behind it.
mm. which is primarily what I've been all about all along is making things more readily accessible to people in an understandable fashion. Mm. So how about, um, so let's say someone's going through post-cycle therapy from a training perspective and a lifestyle perspective, because they've lost that benefit that the, the, the androgens are giving them with regards to managing cortisol, would you suggest that that would be the opportunity or the time for them to kind of pull off training and try and minimize the amount of adrenal activity going on just so cortisol isn't having such a profound effect at like breaking down muscle that they've just accrued? Or is that not really thought of? I don't know. I guess that's, that's quite a difficult question to answer in that when someone removes exogenous hormones, they should be striving to protect that newly built tissue. Mm. And what built that tissue was either an increase in mechanical stress or strength. Mm. So again, it's, it's very difficult in that you're playing this balancing act during a PCT phase of being able to protect that newly acquired tissue while taking care of CNS recovery. Mm. And again, that was what we touched on the last time I spoke with Callum is about when we move, when we remove exogenous hormones and we're in that low hormone environment, not only will it have an effect on um, sports performance, we're then looking at health issues. So we're having decreased recovery, increased inflammation, um, health markers getting uh, skewed, possible metabolic damage. Mm. And that we're not efficiently partitioning food. Mm. So I guess it's something that needs to be carefully managed rather than given a general recommendation. Yeah. To be fair, I I am definitely of the mindset that if you if you've created a super physiological you know hormonal environment and then you you take that away. And then you also take away the, the training environment. You're not going to do a lot to preserve the tissue. But I was just, it was like kind of a thought that popped in regarding the, the like indirect role that testosterone plays with cortisol. cortisol. Yeah. I, I think that would probably be secondary to the other things that I, yeah. I discussed. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. What would be your three biggest take homes from today, Dean? I suppose. Number one, that people have listened have a better understanding towards the basics of pharmacology yeah. and how we can apply that to anabolics and the use of anabolics. Um, secondly, understanding the possible risks and how we may mitigate those risks if we choose to endeavor in anabolics use. Um, I suppose the final one is then looking at the underlying pharmacology to a PCT and how it should be correctly approached. Mm. I suppose if you wrap all them three together it's to stop pro science BS. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Educate yourselves, people. And, and make things more, like I said, readily accessible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like like um I said previously, the kind of prior to all this, I would have been quite a personal bodybuilder and kept to myself, and people would have approached me within Ireland, ask me questions, you know, at the gym or in person. 
And then I just realized at some point, there's no point in keeping information like this to myself when there is a need to be educating people out there on these topics in an intelligent and scientific way. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Where would we, uh, if we wanted to find more about your educational content, your opinions, your methodologies, where do we go, Dean? Probably the best place would be Instagram. Yeah. So I generally put up daily stories on Instagram with random thoughts that pop into my head or little segments of education that I feel could be beneficial to the people who follow me. So I'm on Instagram at DeanSTM. Yeah, I'll tag that all into the post as well. So And it's the, the same for my YouTube. So I will start putting together more content on YouTube. What's currently there at the moment is just the sleep stack explanation of why you may want to look at the sleep stack. And then I've also that modern flaws of PCT video. Yeah. So I will start putting more content on YouTube. It's a matter of getting balance to getting time to put the content out there. Yeah. That's why I find IG so invaluable that I can just go on for two or three minutes and spout out something that's popping into my head on a story for people to, to watch yeah. rather than setting up the camera and editing the video. And I suppose the biggest place for people that want to interact with me is on the train by JP forum. Yeah. Um, I'm on there daily answering questions on health and supplementation and of my own blog there as being a Jordan Peters athlete. So Jordan Peters is my coach also. So, I put up my daily training or what's gone on for the week there. It's more of a, a personal account. So if people want to follow along there, they're more than welcome if they're on the site as a member. Awesome. 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 What is the current objective for you right now with training? As I imagine workloads is ridiculously busy, but what's what's the what where are you at in terms of your training? Um so I've only got back to proper training the last seven weeks as I injured my neck at the start of the year. Right. I um I couldn't turn my neck back in January. I woke up one morning, my neck was completely locked. So I've been getting aggressive chiropractic treatments on it since February, and it's only within the last six or seven weeks that the chiropractor said everything was good. Basically, what happened was just combination of kickboxing, lab work, sitting at a computer. The curve of my neck was completely lost. Yeah. So it was like sitting at a like forty seven degree angle when I should be back at like eighteen. <laughs> so he it, every day I have to spend twenty minutes on a, a neck orthotic to help bring that curve back into my neck, but it's all been positive. They, I was with him there on Tuesday and we're just gonna proceed on with monthly treatments and just continue on with my own rehab. So it's back to full steam and normal training again. So hopefully um, look at compete in 2020, I think. I competed seven years in a row, so this year has been a shock. Mental as well, seven years. This has been a shock this year of like Irish Nationals was this weekend and NABA Nationals is next weekend. And for the first time in seven years, now I've spent the summer dieting. Yeah. It's it's strange, strange feeling, but 
we're um, are expecting our first child next February. So I heard, yeah, congratulations. congratulations. Co- competing will have to uh, take a back burner for a couple of years, I'd say. Yeah, amazing. That'll be the uh, that'll be the next uh, ebook as well. Fertility, uh, uh, fertility, and coping with lack of sleep from babies. <laughs> I, I was only joking with my wife. I said we're from work and night shifts, and obviously the transition from night shift to being off shift I'll be well conditioned for lack of sleep yeah. from a baby <laughs> yeah that's true that's true mm. and, uh, lots of um, lots of exciting projects to come with supplement needs as well of course yeah with supplement needs and then like I said I'm going to be writing health orientated articles for steroidabuse.org so like we said earlier that's it's going to have contributors from William Llewellyn who wrote the Anabolics book. Yeah. I think Thomas O'Connor is looking to come on board as well. And then we have Michael Scally. So it's, it's a slowly developing team of hopefully experts in terms of health towards anabolics that would put readily accessible information out. Awesome. And like I said, Michael Scally put out another follow-up to PCT last Monday where he clearly spells out that in no certain circumstance did he ever say two weeks post. Right, it's Chinese whispers, isn't it? It's, it's like it, it's horrible, and I mean, it's it, it all. There's just so, too many bro science myths at this stage that that's what triggered some of the posts that I have on Instagram. And if anyone is following me, there's highlights there towards dispelling myths for thyroid hormone yeah. um, myths with that you're going to get your your thyroid hormone your thyroid is going to get shut down from using exogenous hormones or clenbuterol beta receptor down regulation of using clenbuterol or i touch into the reasons why we may see issues with the likes of certain anabolics and in terms of digestion mm. but it's all again it's all just bro science chinese whispers on forums of someone said this so we're just going to roll with it over and over the years yeah. So I'm hoping I'm hoping over time we can change a lot of opinions, but I can see in the process upsetting a few people. Dean Saint Mark, the bro science buster. That's what <laughs> <doing>. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll definitely get you back on. I would love to do that blood work and, and data tracking episode, and um, I'd love to do an episode like today, but on uh, kind of more metabolic hormones and particularly thyroid hormone. That'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. perfect yeah um but thank you so much I, I actually think that was longer than the first one we did that was like two and a half hours long <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome that was insane it's crazy when you get so passionate about a subject you can just keep going and going it's time flies isn't it literally did i just looked at the clock just now it's like damn yeah 12:30. oh god 12 30 I think you need to be somewhere, Dean. You told me, so you're probably late now. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're no longer going to my parents, so okay. we're just we're just chilling out here on the couch. Podcast took priority. So it's yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, now I have to go train legs. That's that's what I have to do on a Sunday. So I have to go eat pre-workout and then get ready to go train legs. Get to it. Nice. Okay. Well, thank you um, again. For, for everything for today and obviously for your time previously as well and for the content you're putting out as of late because it's extremely valuable and it's opening up a lot of people's eyes um so yeah it's it's amazing i have to say thank you to you and 
Luke, for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to get on to voice my opinion if people are going to listen. They will, 100%. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get you on again soon, Dean, but I'll tag everything in the the post that I'll put up for the podcast, Instagram tags, websites, everything, even the links to those studies, and um, we will um, speak again soon. Awesome. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you.